Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. Good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. We start today with the BC government's crackdown on Airbnb. The new rules set to kick in here in the spring... You will only be allowed to rent out your primary residence on Airbnb. Now, there are some exceptions, but for many Airbnb hosts, the rules have changed here big time. Now, why is the government doing that? Well, it's the housing crisis. They say Airbnb has exploded in popularity. The government wants to free up those Airbnb units for long-term rentals. Have a listen to Premier David Eby here. Without question, uh, in British Columbia, short-term rentals have gotten out of control. Uh, We have a situation uh, in our province where uh, the top 10% of hosts account for 50% of the income for short-term rental operators. All right, lots of Airbnb operators hit with these new rules. Many of them worried Let's talk to one now. Wendy Keeping. Wendy is an Airbnb host in Victoria, and I'm very pleased to welcome her. Wendy, thank you for coming on today. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. I need to start off by saying that I totally agree with David Eby and that, yes, uh, I think there needs to be a crackdown on Airbnbs. He's exactly right. But where I have a problem is that all Airbnbs are not created equally just like many other things. So in my particular case, I don't have 20 different properties. I have one small 250 square foot micro loft in the Heritage Janion building downtown, which is in the area referred to as Old Town. This Janion building, it was an abandoned derelict ex-hotel in the downtown core that the city wanted a developer to rehabilitate. And so they turned them into these tiny little micro lofts and the paperwork back then, you can, I can produce it now, will show you that it was never, uh, the, the plan was never to have them for long-term uh, rentals. Although having been down there as often as I have and, and working and cleaning my unit every, every day, every time someone checks in and checks out, I know that there's probably about three or four people that live there long-term. I have even discouraged people from having a discount for a week because it's tiny. But for myself personally, I, I also work uh, a, low, a fairly low-paying job uh, for CFB Esquimalt as a civilian. And this was my only opportunity to be able to own a place when I retire in two years' time. I'm 63. I've been operating my own condo. I go in, I wash the floors on my hands and knees. I have the best rating downtown of all the Airbnbs because I do that. Yep. And I was hoping in two years' time to have somewhere to live here after paying all my taxes my whole life. And and it does and this has been taken away. This is my I legally bought into this. The city said, yes, Wendy, you can have a legal right to do short-term rental and now they're saying no you can't do that anymore sorry well now i can't afford to have that place anymore so what do i do now they've changed the rules on you clearly i mean you were following all the rules yeah 
yeah, I, I, I pay occupancy tax like the hotels do. I pay GST. I pay income tax. I pay, I pay, I pay, I pay. This is not a great rich quick scheme. There's, there's no 20 or 30 operators. There's no team of cleaners for me. It's just me. Yeah, and it's one place. And at the end of the day... Yeah. I'm getting I'm getting railroaded out of town and people think, well, it doesn't affect me. But, yeah, it's your property rights. They're starting mm. with me. But what's next? Is it going to be capital gains on your private residence? Then people will say, oh, no, I'm upset because it's going to affect me. Yeah. Where does this end? Yeah. I, I, I feel like uh, like I've been I, I really feel like my rights have been violated here. And mm. when I heard a lawyer say that that we're being treated like a Guatemala, a, a, a little have-not country somewhere like that. This is how I feel. I, I, I feel like uh, it's not safe to buy property here. It's, it's, I, I agree that, that we are in a housing crisis and we need immigration. I understand that. But I don't think my 250-square-foot property is going to solve that issue. Maybe when people have a house somewhere and... and and okay, so there's a lot of, they're going to allow people to have their basement suites are going to be legal. They're not paying a license fee. I'm paying $1,500 license fee, and it's not prorated, mind you. Yeah. Uh, now it's going to be 2500 from January to May. Even though you're not allowed to go after May, it won't be prorated. It'll be 2500 for those five months. And so I'm doing everything legal, and I'm being shut down, but the person who's who's never paid a license fee or occupancy tax or all those other taxes, they're going to be allowed to continue operating because it's in their primary residence. Well, I can't share a studio suite with somebody else, so I can't participate in that. Right, right. I was hoping this was going to be my home, even though I think it's probably too small for anyone to live in. I love the outdoors, so I said I can make it work. I'm speaking to Wendy Keeping. Wendy is a Victoria Airbnb host, and we're talking about the Airbnb rules that are kicking in in the spring. So, so Wendy, uh, what are you planning to do? Are you trying to are you trying to open? Are you trying to sell the place now, or what's going on? Oh, I I, I don't have any choice only to sell yeah. because when I bought in there, it was just before the pandemic when Tiff Macklem said, "Well, interest rates won't be going up anytime soon," <laughs> and we all know where that went. And so now with my job at the base, uh, my paycheck every two weeks is that the max is around thirteen fifty. It's not going to go anywhere near paying. When I, when I was doing the short-term rental, I was paying, my mortgage was $1,200 and I had this ladder fee. So I was able to make equal the payment and, and make some on the principal mortgage. Well, now with my job at the base, that's not going to happen. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to be able to pay all the bills and still have that place. So I have you, no choice only to sell. And it's really painful for me. What do you think would be a fairer way to do this? Do you think you should be given a, a longer period to, to sell the place before they change the rules? Or should existing Airbnb operators who had one property like yourself, should they maybe have been grandfathered in and allowed to continue operate? What do you think should be done? I do think that these particular heritage non-conforming, transient, grandfathered-in units should be allowed to operate. They are a valuable asset to the downtown core of Victoria. The tourists need it. There's not enough hotel rooms to go to accommodate these people. I thought tourism was the lifeblood of Victoria. Am I wrong? 
No, uh, no, I, absolutely. It's it's a huge part of the economy. Last question for you, Wendy. What is your concern here now? You mentioned that you're nearing retirement age and that this was going to be, produce some retirement income for you. At least that was your your plan. Are, what are your concerns now in terms of finances here going forward? Well, I'm I'm hoping to sell. I don't know because, yeah. like, I'm like David Eby, who had a, a suite in a short-term rental building. I'm not saying he did short-term rental, but the value of his property, he was able to. What I read in the news said 150 thousand was what he made from the sale of his. That was due to the fact that it was a short-term rental building. Because of course, yeah. we all know he had, he had a place. In, he had a place the in the same. He had a place in the same building as yours. Correct. Well, I don't think it was the same building, okay. but it's the same situation. It was yeah. a, a legally zoned, transient, non-conforming unit. Okay. And so, you know, yeah, he made his money and now he's going to Point Grey. Well, I'm happy for him, but I would like to have the same opportunity. And, and that's all been gone. I don't know if I'll be able to even sell this place Is or there how a, much. Are there a lot of places on the market there in that building now? Like a lot of people are in the same boat, boat as you, right? So are, are a lot of people now trying to sell, get out? So far in my building, there's not a lot. There's, okay. I think, five or six. But right next door in the Pearl, which is just finished building, there's a lot because those people thought they were going to be able to rent for 30 days. And now the province has redefined short-term rental as 90 days. The only place in the world, BC, 90 days is now going to be. So people don't understand that there's not going to be any Airbnbs downtown Victoria like there was. Uh, it's a huge loss all the way around. I feel like it's wrong, and I'm so grateful to you for allowing me to have my voice because the City Council of Victoria refused to even entertain the idea of listening to us as a group. So Wendy, thank you. Thank, thank you for coming on and telling your story today. I, I appreciate it. Thank you. All right, here we go now with BC's new deadline to go 100% electric vehicles. 2035 is the new date. 100% EV sales in BC for new vehicles. Now, is this realistic or is it fantasy land? I've been talking to a number of industry leaders on this on the shows recently who think that this target cannot be met, it will be damaging to the auto industry in Canada and could actually drive up prices for electric vehicles and gas-powered vehicles too. Got John Rustad standing by to discuss. First, let's have a listen to Justin Trudeau here. The federal government has the same target to go 100% EVs all across Canada. Listen to Trudeau here. We're moving forward with specific targets of 20% electric vehicles for all new sales uh, in, uh, in 2026, 60% by 2030, and 100% by 2035. And with the kind of demand and the kind of solutions being brought forward by the auto industry, uh, it, would surprise, it wouldn't surprise me for us to reach some of those targets ahead of time. Might even hit the target even earlier. 100% electric vehicle sales in Canada? He says you could even hit it earlier than 2035. Let's discuss with my guest now, John Rustad. John is the leader of the Conservative Party of British Columbia. He's the MLA for Nechaco Lakes. Hey, John, thanks for coming on today. 
Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me on today. Yeah, I appreciate it a lot. So let's talk about this deadline here, 2035, 100% EV sales. Now, this would be for new vehicle sales in British Columbia. What do you think of that target? Well, the only way it's realistic is if you're basically telling the people in this province that they can't own a vehicle. It is completely unrealistic in terms of the targets. And, you know, I've talked to uh, a number of uh, people, you know, certainly in the automobile industry, and I've read a bunch of reports. You know, for example, Fortune magazine says that uh, the affordability pinch for consumers, even after government incentives, is is completely unsustainable. General Motors, um, you know, is back away from because Ford, for example, says it's losing thirty six thousand dollars on every vehicle and for a total loss of a projected loss of four point five billion dollars. There's no way that the prices on these electric vehicles going to stay where they are. And that means they're going to have to increase dramatically in order for these companies to be able to even come close to meeting the product, the production targets that uh, that, you know, people in Canada, people in British Columbia, the governments would like to like them to make. Do we have enough? Yeah, it's just it's just not realistic in terms of price tags. People just can't afford these types of costs for a vehicle. Yeah. And when you take a look at this program, it also includes fines and penalties right if the targets are not not met so if you do not meet this 100 percent ev sale by 2035 and there are interim targets as well the government threatening to apply penalties to automakers up to twenty thousand dollars a vehicle what do you think exactly. that would do to the price well so what will end up happening is these these companies if they have to sell evs and evs aren't available they'll have to be doing it based on forward sales uh, but what that also means is that it limits how many uh, internal combustion engine vehicles that they can sell. So what happens if, for example, if they can only sell 80% or 60% or whatever the number will be of internal combustion, yeah. the lower cost vehicles are the ones that will get dropped off of the market because they'll want the higher profit margins. And so what will end up happening is even the affordable vehicles that are there today uh, will end, will end up not being available in sales if anybody wants to carry on with an internal combustion engine and the whole thing will drive up the prices. And you know, half the people in this province, they are struggling to put food on the table, let alone being able to think about affording you know, a, a vehicle that's going to be 50% more than what's in the market today. Speaking of John Rustad, leader of the Conservative Party of BC, 100% electric vehicle sales in BC by 2035. Let me play a clip here for you, John, get your thoughts. This is Blair Qualley, New Car Dealers Association of BC. Uh, he is pessimistic about these deadlines. Let's listen. There's a whole question of, of rural British Columbia and the availability of charging infrastructure yeah. there and uh, low-income folks uh, that may have some challenges with uh, purchasing these vehicles to meet these targets. I think the consensus is this is way, you know this is going too far too fast. Okay, too far too fast. That's the head of the New Car Dealers Association of BC. John, I, I'm sure government would, would think, well, hang on, this guy's just in the, he's just trying to make profit on, on vehicle sales. We're trying to save the planet here. What do you think? Well, I, you know, the, the whole idea that electric vehicles are going to save the, save the planet is, is uh, you know, false narrative to begin with. But something that Blair touched on, I think that is very important, is charging. So you go to an apartment building that's got, let's say, a parking lot with 200 stalls in there. There might be two or maybe even four that are uh, available for charging an electric vehicle. So if you can think about what that would mean to wire a parking lot with, uh, with the ability to be able to charge vehicles, not to mention the, um, the, uh, what you know, so many people in Vancouver, for example, and other cities have to park on the street because there is no parking. 
So what, are they going to be running extension cords from their house and spending 12 to 18 hours, you know, with a, with a trickle charge for, for the vehicle? I mean, it's just, it's completely unrealistic what's happening. Electric vehicles, you know, if people want them, you know, that's a, that's a good thing. But let's be realistic about what we're doing here. Okay, you represent uh, a rural part of the province in, in British Columbia. What what do people feel up there about electric vehicles? Like, would they would they work in the deep freeze up there? Or do people have range anxiety around these EVs? Well, look, electric vehicles got a nice range as long as you don't turn on your air conditioning or you don't turn on your heater. And of course, when it's minus thirty five and you're driving down the the highway, you got to have your heater on to keep your car warm, to keep your windshield clear. And so that immediately drops the range dramatically. And the other thing is, you know, when you look at charging, so let's say you pull in to a, a high-speed charger, you're still talking, waiting 20 to 30 minutes to charge your vehicle as opposed to two or three minutes to put gas in your vehicle. Yeah. That's, a, that's a pretty significant inconvenience for people, especially when you're traveling long distances. And speaking of charging up these vehicles and the lack of charging infrastructure right now what about the power supply overall in british columbia like do we have enough electricity to power all these evs nowhere close 84 percent of the energy we consume as a province is fossil fuels only 16 percent is electricity and virtually none of that is currently going towards uh transportation the transportation uses about 30 percent of the energy we have in the province so if you wanted to replace all of the transportation in this province with electric You'd have to build um, the equivalent of 20 more site C dams. And it's just unrealistic uh, to think we're even going to build another dam, let alone 20. Well, hang on a second here. Like, we already have, I think it's around, I think we're around close to 20% EVs in BC right now, right? So a lot of those EVs, are they not being powered by clean electricity? I mean, BC Hydro, it's, go ahead. So, let's, so it's not 20% EVs, it's 20% sales in the last year. Okay. And so when yeah. you look at the overall stock, it's right. There isn't that many EVs actually on the road. It's only about three to 5% of the vehicles on the road. And I can tell you, it's, it's going to be a challenge meeting that meeting just that energy demand. When, when you look at what's needed, remember, but, but mind you, when I, when I talk about that uh, total of 30% of our, of our energy consumption being uh, for transportation, that includes all of our boats and planes and trains and uh, you know, transport trucks and all of that, not just light duty vehicles. Yeah, but even with light light duty vehicles, you're going to need um, two, maybe four more um, site C dams in terms of demand. It took add on heat pumps. We need to have a realistic conversation about what our energy mix is going to look like going forward, and how we're going to meet that demands, and most importantly, how we're going to do that so that we actually have affordable electricity rates. Okay, go. Okay, speaking of going forward. We take a look at this 2035 deadline here for 100% new EV sales in, in BC. You think it's non, not realistic. I've talked to a lot of people in the industry who, who agree with you. They think this is unrealistic. What is a better way? What, what, should, what, is, what should government do? Are you saying they should just scrap these targets? Yes, exactly. I think they should scrap the targets. I think we should be able to have the opportunity for electric vehicles in this province we have, should have a realistic conversation around energy production and um, and what's needed so that we have energy security in this province. And we should let the market work it through. I, I mean, I think, you know, people that have the ability to afford an electric vehicle, that's great. But I do not believe that, you know, people earning an average salary in this province should be paying their taxes to create a subsidy for somebody to buy an electric vehicle. 
I just don't think that's realistic, and I don't think that's so, fair to the people that are paying those taxes. So you're saying they should also scrap the rebates for an EV? Absolutely. I just don't think that's oh. – I don't think it's fair. Half the people in this province are struggling to put food on the table, and yet they have to pay taxes so that somebody else can afford to buy an electric vehicle. Most people, you know, electric vehicles are completely out of their price range in terms of, um, you know, what they need for, for their transportation. John, thank you for coming on to talk about this today. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, Mike. Take care. Let's talk about the North Shore Mountains Trail that was attracting lots of hikers out to this wilderness area near Mount Fromm on the North Shore. Just one problem, the trail did not exist. There is no trail. Unfortunately, this non-existent trail had appeared on Google Maps creating a lot of trouble for people who were going out there to hike this non-existent trail. Let's discuss it with my guest, Dwight Yoakum, CEO, BC Search and Rescue Association. Dwight, thank you for coming on today. Thank you very much, Mike. Glad to be here. You bet. And thank you for all the great work you do there at Search and Rescue. I mean, you guys do invaluable work here to help people out when they, when they get in trouble. So I, I'm grateful to you for that. Let, let's talk about this non-existent trail. Dwight, can you tell me about this? Because this is bringing up a little deja vu for me. Like this, How long has this non-existent trail been on, was on Google Maps? From what I understand from North Shore, it's actually been on uh, Google Maps for a couple of years and causing them a bit of grief uh, to try and get it removed. Yeah, that's what I thought. Like, I know that people, a lot of people have gotten into a jam over this over for a long time. So, like, so tell me what goes on here. Like, when people open up Google Maps, what did the trail look? And I know you've finally been successful in getting Google to take this, this stupid non-existent trail marker off their map, which is good, but... When it was there, what did it what did it look like? Uh, well, my 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 uh, kudos to uh, North Shore Search and Rescue for finally getting it removed. Um, but yeah. it, it looked like any other trail that was on Google Maps. It it looked like there was an actual route up to that location, and there wasn't. It's it's um, just a line on a uh, electronic map, and and there really was nothing there. Yeah. Yeah, that, that is very strange. And and so what kind of trouble were people getting in here? Because people would see this trail on the map and go, hmm, that looks like a nice area to go explore. So what would happen when they would get out there? Well, they would uh, start the hike and uh, it, it would uh, appear on your phone uh, that you're following the proper trail as a GPS location, but you're you're really bushwhacking and you have no idea what you're getting into because the the map itself doesn't indicate uh, how steep a, the terrain is that you're heading up into and that's part of the problem it was uh, uh, extremely uh, steep uh, very very treacherous terrain and uh, it, it got a lot of people into trouble oh yeah and I've seen some of the videos of this area it looks really really steep and rugged there where where, where exactly are we talking about here dwight where was where is this area located it, it's it's on the, the north shore mountains um and it's one of of uh, uh several like Google Maps has gotten a, a number of people into trouble um even if you're driving um we, we've had it, situations where people have looked for alternative routes and, and you've heard the stories where they've ended up 
in the middle of nowhere, especially on winter roads. We had a rescue not long ago. So you, you really need to be aware of what tool you're using and if you're using the right tool for the right situation. Yeah, for sure. And this is really uh, kind of silly that this had gone on so long. Um, let's talk about some of the trouble that people got into here, Dwight, because there had to be some rescues here. Tell me about this most recent rescue of the uh, the hiker here who got stranded there on that non-existent trail. Um, my understanding is North Shore was was uh, kind of used to doing that rescue, unfortunately, uh, when they realized where the individual was. Uh, they knew the terrain they were getting into. Uh, it's quite technical. Uh, it's not uh, the safest place for anyone to be going into. And, and so it, it turned out to be a, um, a bit of a technical rescue, even though they knew where the individual was. Uh, it's um, it, it's a bit of a dangerous situation for those that are in that area. Yeah. Yeah. And so they had to use helicopter and rope teams there to save a one hiker, a male hiker who became stranded there. That happened on November 4th. North Shore Rescue also reporting a similar helicopter rescue in the same area. That happened on September 20th. And if we want to go back even even further Two years ago, Dwight, there was a hiker there. Now, this is tragic. A, a hiker yeah. who fell to his death in the same area. That happened two years ago. Is there any indication that that hiker who tragically died here, was he following that non-existent trail, or do we know? We're, we're not 100% sure if he was following that uh, particular trail at that time, uh, but yeah. North Shore became aware of uh, when they rescued that uh, second person, that, uh, that where they were getting their information from and what they were following, that's when they tried to uh, uh, reach out to Google to make the change. Yeah. Now, so let's talk about that. So Google Maps is now, the, the trail is no longer displayed on Google Maps, correct? Thank goodness. Yeah. Yeah, that is that is good. Why did this take so long? Is that just because Google is this big monstru monstrous bureaucracy and it just doesn't move respond quickly you'd think they would you think they would have moved this removed this false trail or this non-existent trail a long time ago i, I can only assume you're right uh, it's a, it's a big organization you get a, a an email from someone uh, who's uh, suggesting a, a, a small change to their massive map system yeah. And uh, when North Shore finally went public with it and the media picked up on it, I think that caught their attention and, and made them realize there, there had to be a change. Yeah. Yeah. Like you said, thank goodness. And hopefully more, we don't see any other people who get lured out there and get into trouble again. Speaking of Google Maps, like Dwight, as a guy who's got some experience on this in the outdoors, is Google Maps a good a good tool for hikers to rely on for finding themselves finding them you know navigating in the wilderness in one word no not, not at all it's, it's not designed for that at all and it's uh not something we would recommend there are uh, other apps that are designed specifically for trails and uh, i'm old school i i like the printed map and the compass i've never had a battery die on it but it requires a bit of skill to read those maps but there's um Two or three other uh, apps that you can use for your phone, like All Trails, Gaia, Strava, that are specifically designed for uh, tra uh, traversing trails on a mountain. Yeah, I can personally vouch for Gaia. I actually did a recent uh, camping trip uh, on Vancouver Island. We were in a, some, a bit of some a remote area, and 
I had the Gaia app on my phone and I was super impressed with the accuracy and the detail on that map. So that's just one of several options people yeah. can use instead of Google Maps. Another good tip, if I'm sure you would agree, Dwight, you got to make sure that it's a good idea to carry a, uh, an external battery to charge up your phone if, you're, if your battery gets low on your phone, if that's what you're using. Very much so. That's the, the problem with cell phones. Um, depending on the kind of phone you have, you're lucky if it, if it lasts uh, 24 hours, uh, um, even if you're not using it uh, for, for um, tracking and traversing. Uh, if you're using it quite constantly for um, uh, doing your, your mapping and, and following the trails, you're going to be draining your battery pretty quick. And you're, you're, you're going to want to be able to uh, use that, um, possibly even to call for help or uh, continue your tracking. So you're going to need battery backup for sure. Yeah, good idea. Yeah, have that spare battery backup for sure. Dwight, thank you for coming on. Thanks again for all the great work you do there at BC Search and Rescue. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.